Hey, ladies and gentlemen, this is Paused Reviews. Oh, welcome back one and all to the greatest podcast you've ever, ever had pierce your ear holes, the Pause Reviews Podcast. I'm your host, Frank, joined as always by my co-host, Tim. Welcome, Tim. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, another you're week. welcome. Another, yeah. another week, and another here week. we fight on. <laughs> yep. It's just, dude, it's all a blur at this point. Yeah, I saw a couple of posts uh, this morning from some family that will remain nameless and uh the post was like what's our end game with this pandemic and i was like what <laughs> like, I just, we don't really get a say in the end game of this pandemic it's over when the pandemic says it's over like it's it, that's not how this works the like, end game of this pandemic is the same as avengers end game we must find and kill thanos before he snaps the other 50 percent of us off the earth yeah and it just you know it went in from there on just typical like you know how long do we have to do x before this is over and it's like no 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 we don't we don't just you know oh if you socially distance for six months it goes away no like right it's as long as it takes it's (laughs) as long as it takes buckle up people like it's uh, sorry you thought this was like you know we all thought two weeks we'd be back at work but i think we realized quickly after that we weren't so i don't know what do you think uh, this is like new zealand no this is america <laughs> and we're, <laughs> we're gonna keep living like this until 80 percent of us are dead that's that's the end game Ugh, it's enraging so, not the pan- yeah. i mean you know like you said the pandemic is what it is and i wouldn't you know i think honestly the only thing literally the only thing that pisses me off about it is that so much of this long lasting just hold that this has on us is of the making of the idiots who keep questioning how long or doing what and then not doing what you're supposed to be doing right like I that's said, why we're I, all yeah. still here I have said from the beginning, this absolutely reminds me of the time I was, we had high school graduation practice and we had to sit in the gym on the bleachers, nice and upright in our little white tuxedos. And we had to practice this. And anytime somebody made a joke or moved, that hour started over again. I went to an all boys school. Wow. We're a bunch of jackasses. (laughs) So sometimes every time you and know, you're all sexually would, frustrated. Yeah. And then, you know, anytime somebody farts or makes any sort of body noise, right, right, that, right. Hour, that, that hour starts over again. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We were there for five hours no. because it kept repeating. Like, that's all I can think of in this scenario. It's like, if y'all don't get on board now, we're just going to start over again. Well, see, and that should be the, that's really the indication here, right? Because, you know, we live in a country where we have to practice sitting still for five hours before we can go do it. And uh, that's just, it is what it is. I mean, but yes, man, just settle into the grind. If we're all grinding together, it will be so much better and shorter. But because we're not, then this is is life. And we just need to deal until it gets sorted, I guess. I don't know. Um, ah, God, it's so frustrating. It's just so frustrating. 
let's see what else. Well, I am trying to get used to this. Is going to be interesting, and I'm trying. Like, I don't know, Tim. You can kind of see me. I've made some changes to the yeah. the. I guess we'll call it a studio. It's just the uh-huh. corner of my basement where I do this, and um, uh, you know, posted up pictures on Instagram. You can see it there. But now that it's different. It's a lot better. It's so much more roomy. I have things stored away. It's cleaner, just more conducive to nice creative thinking. But it's totally shafted my what has become this developed routine over the past 22 weeks of where I rest my hand and where I stand a certain way and where I put the iPad so we can see I, each other. And, and so now I just, just feel very... That. Yes, man. Yeah, it's, like I was like, why do I feel slightly uncomfortable and off and until you just started saying that i was like yeah things are different (laughs) dude and it it's so funny because until we hit record and started doing this it's really it's really (laughs) becoming problematic for me and i'm a guy with anxiety so this is like uh, now i have to look a different way now it's just it's very it's very off-putting i don't know how i'm gonna do uh, this week, but I guess I don't know. I guess we'll maybe I'll have to practice. I will have to practice five hours a day standing in this new position and pray I don't <laughs> fart because then I'll just right. have to start over again. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> what are we here to talk about this week? We watched the movie Doctor Sleep. Yeah. So I'm, you know, I'm kind of excited about this one, um, mm-hmm. and I think I think you did the same. I watched The Shining in preparation for this, and I'm doubly excited because I think you and I watched two different versions of Doctor Sleep. Did. Yeah. Ah, so some uh-huh. of that may come out depending on what we end up touching on here, but I feel like very different movies because they are hugely different lengths. Yeah. 30 minutes is a lot. That's a lot of movie. That's some Peter Jackson extended edition nonsense right there. And I actually had a little, a couple of disruptions. So I think this might actually be the first deep dive where I didn't sit down and watch it straight through in its entirety. So I did is it because like you a, didn't practice the night before? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I should have. Yeah. yeah, come on, Tim. I, I should have should had a dry run. Yeah, uh, and, you Carissa know, kept but, farting. Uh, then you'd have to start <laughs> over and <laughs> start the movie right uh, right over again. Gosh, but you, but man, you've got those first fifteen minutes nailed down. Oh yeah, <laughs> done. Like it's been repeating in my brain. So first things first. Spoiler alert. We are going yeah. to talk about this movie. So if you haven't seen it yet and you hate spoilers, go watch it first. Come back here, then listen to this podcast. If you don't care about spoilers, listen on, my friends. Where can you watch this? The theatrical version is available now on HBO. However, I watch the director's cut. There's a lot more movie. We just talked about it, about 30 minutes. So uh, we'll be able to dive into that a bit more. So if you're looking to watch it for free via an HBO subscription or a trial, you can absolutely do that. But if you really want to get the entire version the full vision um then you need to rent the director's cut but totally worth it okay dr sleep released in 2019 it was directed by mike flanagan and also written by mike flanagan he wrote and directed movies and shows like hush before i wake uh netflix's gerald's game he did oculus and he's also the creator writer of haunting of hill house and the upcoming haunting of bly manor so that whole netflix haunting of anthology series which makes a lot of sense but and it's obviously based on the novel by stephen king Let's see. The budget for Dr. Sleep was about $45 million, and the worldwide gross was only $72 million. This genuinely surprised me, actually. 
Because yeah. I remember, I did not see this in theaters, but I remember when this was out, anyone I had talked to who had seen it spoke really highly of it. Yeah. And I heard a lot of people really praising this one. So I was surprised that this wasn't, this didn't do better. I mean, I don't, I don't even remember it really being up against anything. Like I remember it being yeah. one of the main things out. I mean, I guess, and you know, as always, we're going to, you know, we'll roll through the cast here in a second. I mean, the biggest name that you're, that, you know, any casual movie fan would recognize is Ewan McGregor, um, right. which I thought was a little interesting. I, I'm not sure I thought of who I would have cast instead. I, I guess it's sort of maybe been a while since I've seen Ewan McGregor in anything. I can't really think of the last thing that I've seen him in. So interesting casting, I think. Again, I don't know who I would replace him with, but ultimately it didn't do, it didn't change. It doesn't affect my, my view of the movie. It just at first I was like, huh, that's kind of interesting. But beyond that, I, I don't know that a casual fan would, would recognize any of these other names. We'll, we'll kind of tie some, some people together to some broader universes here in a second. But I don't know, maybe that had something to do with it. I'm not sure. Yeah, I mean, I guess I can see that. You and McGregor would be probably Probably the biggest name, but I I do think that Rebecca. So Ewan McGregor plays Dan Torrance, Rebecca Ferguson plays Rose the Hat, and I think she would be the next big bill. Um, yeah. I mean, besides, uh, you know, I think she was in the Star series, The White Queen, but she was also in Mission Impossible. Mm-hmm. Was it Rogue Nation? I want to say. And then she did Greatest Showman. Now it wasn't mm-hmm. like a massive part, but yeah, I would definitely say she's second billing and. I think it's fair. A casual moviegoer probably wouldn't know her off the gate. Maybe she looked familiar. Maybe she didn't. Yeah. Um, other than that, you have Kylie Curran playing Abra Stone. And Cliff Curtis might be another one that more seasoned moviegoers would recognize. Uh, he plays Billy Freeman. And Zahn McLaren plays Crow Daddy, and Emily Aylin Lind as Snakebite Andy. There's a lot more characters in this, but I feel yeah. I felt like this was sort of the core group. Like, these were yes. the main hitters that, that you're going to be watching the majority of the time, and then everyone yep. else kind of sprinkles in here and there. Yeah, and actually, as we were looking, as looking through the notes, um, I, I had noted when I was watching it that there was a little bit of a Hill House thread running through it, um, and then when I saw the notes that this was written and directed by by the creator of Hill House, it wasn't surprising. We see Violet McGraw, who played the young um, Nell. Uh, she right. shows up real brief scene at the, the beginning of the movie. Robert Longstreet, who played Mr. Dudley, the caretaker. He is one of the true not. And then uh, Henry Thomas, uh, the younger Hugh uh, from Hill House and otherwise, you know, of et fame he uh he pulls duty as uh jack torrance uh, which like, what a heavy lift and so yeah. much trust in that totally because that is not uh, we'll talk about this a little bit in a second yep. these are a lot of recreated scenes using lookalike actors besides wendy torrance right like mm-hmm. he probably gets the longest you know, straight up FaceTime, like full face screen time in the movie, playing yeah. someone as iconic as Jack Nicholson played him. Yeah. That was quite, and, and I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know about you. He did a pretty good job um, yes. in terms of, there was yeah. just moments. And, and that was the other, he didn't try too hard. But there were just moments where he would do a little bit of the inflection or the, mm-hmm. you know, the, sort of the same stress points that Jack Nicholson notoriously hits in his just his normal yeah. 
his speech. And uh, but otherwise, you know, pointy eyebrows and the same haircut, and he's, yeah, he's right there. Yeah, uh, it it was it was cool. Um, but definitely, I I, I kind of picked that thread out right away, so I wasn't surprised when when I see the connection. So all of this makes much more sense, um, and kind of understand why I liked this as much as I liked. Uh, Hill House as well. So yeah, and I think the other, just the other kind of deep cut, maybe um, you know, if you'd like quirky, goofy, dark movies, um, but uh, Carol Stryken, who uh, he plays one of the True Knot members, uh, uh, Grandpa Flick, mm. um, he's super recognizable um, if you've seen uh, the uh, two Adams Family movies, the, the first one, uh, and then Adams Family Values, as well as First Men in Black. He plays the the tall, bald guy um, who who gets taken out by the bug uh, early in the movie. But he's also in stuff like uh, Twin Peaks, super recognizable. He's he's just got a, a character actor creepiness about him. Um, so it's really cool to see him pop up in some stuff. Really tall guy, bald, super recognizable. Um, and he actually probably provided one of like the creepiest moments for me in this movie. But it's always kind of cool to see those kind of character actors pop up in, in creepy fun movies too yeah that is fun okay so dr sleep what's it about so the general premise is this danny torrance is all grown up now dan torrance this is after the the we see a little bit of the aftermath following mm-hmm. the events of the shining uh him and his mother kind of settling into life again and it, it pops us up with him as an adult and he has really struggled with his past and really struggled not only with just the events uh of the overlook hotel um but also just everything that happened from there Right. And, and having to deal with, you know, him and his mother trying to figure out life afterwards, etc. So he's given in like his father to alcoholism and is just deep in the throes of that. And then we watch him slowly work his way out of that hole with the help of some new characters and and mm-hmm. uh, and some old. Right. So, uh, you know, Dick Halloran and, and a few others from The Shining uh, revisit him and and sort of spur him along but um he comes through and is introduced to a new character Aberstone, who has who's a very strong shiner and the reason they come together is because there's this tribe of shine vampires let's say calling themselves the true knot led by rebecca ferguson and basically uh we're kind of told about this new concept where there are people who i get i don't I'm a little unclear as to whether or not they shine and and somehow rather than just living that way they choose like a darker path and 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 like vampires are turned into these pseudo immortal creatures who feed on not blood but the they call it steam which yeah. is sort of like the essence the soul the shine juice I don't know it's like this yeah. mist that comes out of kids who shine as they are tortured or scared or whatever and um and eventually killed and they uh, they just suck up this mist (laughs) as it floats up into the sky um so abra is like the most powerful they've ever seen or felt and so they're after her at the same time abra teaming up now with dan after them to stop them and all of it kind of comes to a head uh back at the overlook it's not an easy one to summarize simply just because there are some holes there are some things that 
just don't quite make sense. And and maybe they do if you've read the books and that kind of stuff. But uh, if you're going just from the movies, th- there's a little bit missing there, I think. This will be our third Stephen King adaptation. Yeah. After Is it the, really? Oh, the two the, it movies. Yeah. The two it movies. Um, and we know how bonkers that got with the whole, you know, turn it into a spider at the end ness so Freaking you know Stephen there's King. yeah there's just parts of this that will follow that issue but then you also tie in the fact that it is a direct sequel to stanley K- K- uh, kubrick's vision of stephen king's the shining right. <laughs> so there is the layers of I don't want to say complications, but there are unique layers to this that that's very true because yeah, Kubrick's movie differed so much from the novel. Right. And so you need to somehow make a true adaptation of Dr. Sleep while also staying true as a sequel to the shining by Stanley Kubrick, which was so divergent from the novel, the shining. I mean, how do you even be the fact that Mike Flanagan even wanted to take on this Rubik's cube of a puzzle is d- d- demands commendation. Like this well, is and, huge. And then you left out the cherry on top, which is that Stephen King hates Stanley Kubrick's version. And so he hates even then it. directed his own version years later Ugh. and really didn't want anybody to do this version, you know, as Dr. Sleep. So trying to get Stephen King on board <laughs> with this project at all i mean yeah when you, when you lay it out like that uh yeah the fact respect. that this even exists is a miracle <laughs> bad respect i mean like flanagan <laughs> right <laughs> uh so i mean you really gotta want it right like you really yeah. gotta want it um totally. so this kind of segues really well into some trivia and fun facts there's a lot and some of it is this stuff we're kind of talking about now first though danny lloyd actually makes a cameo in dr sleep as the spectator at the baseball game danny lloyd played danny torrance in stanley kubrick's the shining uh ooh, bonus fun fact so lloyd was six when they filmed the shining and kubrick was overly protective of him on set did not want him to know it was a horror movie he even went so far as to swap him out for a life-size life-size dummy for some of the scarier scenes lloyd actually didn't know that it was a horror movie until years and years later when he saw a highly edited cut of the film he actually did not see the full uncut version of the shining until he was 17 years old 11 years after he actually filmed it that is all nuts especially if you bookend that with the way that he treated Shelley Duvall like because Kubrick, oh, Kubrick like, he was awful her. to her yeah <laughs> so to see him take extra precautions over a kid which rightfully, rightfully so I mean it's a six-year-old but then you hear the other side of that coin and the way that he just you know mentally destroyed her yeah yeah uh, it's pretty nuts Dude, there was I'll never forget one of the clips like a behind the scenes clip of her just in tears like shattered during this one take and someone came over to sort of comfort her and without even looking at Shelley Duvall he just walks by and goes don't comfort her don't talk to her you know he was terrible to that woman yeah yeah um so uh okay so you talked about this a little bit here mm-hmm. as almost everybody knows Stephen King notoriously hates Stanley Kubrick's The Shining to the extent that he wrote his own 4-hour made for TV version of the movie in 1997 which was an abomination as most Stephen King adaptations especially the made for TV ones are yeah 
But because of this, making Doctor Sleep was immensely difficult uh, for Mike Flanagan. King obviously prefers his 97 version, but the writer-director, Mike Flanagan, absolutely knew that nobody... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Nobody had seen the 97 version, and everybody knew and loved the 1980 Kubrick version. Um, so after tons and tons of convincing, King finally agreed to allow that version of The Shining to be the basis of this film sequel slash adaptation of Dr. Sleep. Um, the final product and the final thing is that King absolutely loves Flanagan's Dr. Sleep because he does an amazing job of not only making it, a, I, I guess, I haven't read Dr. Sleep, but King says it's a great adaptation of his book. But additionally, it really does it really does pay tribute to King's vision for The Shining while also staying true to Kubrick's vision of The Shining as the basis for this sequel. I mean, this movie is like six things at once, if you're thinking yeah. about it, between adaptation, sequel, and so on. So so the, fa- the sheer fact, like we said, the sheer fact that he was able to pull this out and pull this together and it to be so successful... Yeah, maybe not at the box office, but in the eyes of the people who watch it, and certainly in the eyes of Stephen King, is a massive, massive, massive achievement. God bless Mike Flanagan. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, and then the last thing is that you know all the the sets from The Shining, everything they've been destroyed for for a very yeah. long time, and so nearly all of the elements from The Shining had to be fully recreated using lookalike actors and blueprints from Kubrick's own estate. So that was also a ma- like. So we we already talked about getting the permission from King, but how yeah. do you get a studio to greenlight this and say, by the way? We have to spend a fortune because Kubrick, he used the facade of the hotel for the exteriors. Yeah. But he built across like four sound stages detailed uh, interiors that many of them had to be fully recreated to shoot Dr. Sleep. That's not something that would ever happen today. And correct me if I'm wrong, and maybe, you know, we'll get correction on this, but I feel like I read somewhere that. Kubrick was very like notoriously like destroyed his his negatives and notes and things like that for some reason. I I don't know where I might have picked that up, but I mm. feel like he was really protective of his his you know prints and things like that. So they might and not six year old boys and yeah and six year old <laughs> boys. <laughs> but we, you know we touched on this before too with the recreation of the scenes of Jack Torrance. Um, with uh with henry thomas that i just i really liked the way they they did this going this route and finding lookalikes to really bring these parts to life rather than going the route that disney did with the cgi and like rogue one where they they did grand moff tarkin and they did the younger leia and then they did that again with um rise of skywalker when they wanted to do that duel between leia and luke uh you know 30 years prior Mm. and I just think like your brain adjusts quicker when you see a real person and you're like, yeah, okay, that's not Jack Nicholas, but you let it go. Jack right? Nicholson. Jack Nicholson. Yeah. Yeah. Not the golfer. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, it's, you know, it's, it's not Jack Nicholson, but it's not your, your brain just corrects it. I, I just, i like yeah. it better than that. CGI just takes me out of it. And then you're like, yeah, okay. I mean, that looks like, you know, Mark Hamill is a young Luke Skywalker, but 
the rest of the movie is not CGI, so that still stands out. So I'd rather see a well-done makeup job, impersonation, and at first you're like, oh, and then it's over. And, and, and you're not spending the whole time going, oh, yeah, I guess they got it right. But the sets are, I mean, beautiful. I mean, maybe somebody who has watched this movie, you know, watched The Shining hundreds and hundreds of times could nitpick something. But having just watched it the day before watching this, I was like, I mean, the boiler room, the bar. Um, yeah, the, the gold room, room with, was really what yeah, surprised me. At the woman in the tub, like it was, I mean, that horrible carpet i mean it was all just uh it looked really good yeah yeah i agree i will say you know it's funny so um henry thomas as jack nicholson's character or as jack nicholson's jack torrance really 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 surprised me like in a in a really positive way you know the actress that they got to play shelly duvall and the, the the kid actor who played danny lloyd you know, or Danny and um, and Wendy really don't look like really don't look like them at all. And, and it's, it's, it's I mean, you know, and to be honest, especially with Shelley Duvall, who has such a unique appearance, um, yeah. you know, this person just looked like an average person. But but it doesn't matter because, you know, what you know to be true is that this is 30 years later and yeah. these people are not six and or alive or like, you know what I'm saying? Like, I don't, you know, in the in the case of um, Dick Holleran or, or, you know, Scatman Crothers, he plays mm-hmm. Dick Holleran in the original. You know, the guy they brought in, it's obviously not Scatman Crothers, but you just you just buy in because you yeah. you can accept the fact that this is a decades later and it's not that it's a decades later sequel. It's a sequel that takes place decades later. People grow yeah. up and, and people age out. So, um, yeah, I, I agree. I didn't find it distracting at all. It was really no. impressive. And I just, I really was floored with, yeah. uh, with Henry Thomas's Jack Nicholson. It was yep. surprisingly, surprisingly good. Um, okay. So all that being said, the overall opinions, I really enjoyed Dr. Sleep. I felt like it was one of the better Stephen King adaptation films. And I'm not saying that from the context of, you know, I think it was really close to the book. As I mentioned, I haven't read it, but I just thought it was an actual watchable film. Uh, It was a watchable movie, whereas so many of the adaptations of Stephen King books just really are not. It was long, but I really didn't feel it. Like I said, I watched the director's cut, which had a three-hour runtime, but there's so much richness added in those 30 minutes. You know, for example, in the, and, and maybe you can speak to this, Tim, but in the theatrical release, the team CGI'd young Danny's eyes to be blue to match Ewan McGregor's eye color. Ewan McGregor has blue eyes. Um, but the kid who plays Danny has brown eyes. So they CGI'd his eyes blue. In the director's cut, they are left brown and changed later in the story in a way that really pays off so well when grown-up Dan is talking to the ghost of his father, Jack, who is now Lloyd the bartender, as he tells him of the pain that his mother suffered and how it affected how she looked at Danny. He does this whole monologue as he's sitting at the bar talking to his dad, you know, and, and he keeps saying, you're Jack Torrance, you're Jack, you're my dad. And, and his response is, no, I'm Lloyd the bartender, I'm Lloyd the 
bartender. So to kind of break through to this ghost, he just starts talking about his mother dying and and how after Jack dies, they, you know, how, how hard it was and how, how, how much his mother suffered and that every time he would look at Danny's eyes or every time he would look at Danny, she would look away because she couldn't stand to look at him and he never understood why and then he realized that it was because he had his father's eyes so he Ah. goes into the bathroom and he stares at himself in the mirror and uses his shine to change his eye color blue so that his mother will look at him again and it is this immensely powerful moment that you don't get in the theatrical cut but it yeah. makes so much sense and it really dives into sort of the abilities that these kids have it's it's far beyond being able to to talk to people or to you know do all this other kind of stuff they can physically do incredible things and and it you lose that if you don't watch this version of the movie that's yeah, just one I, example yeah i definitely didn't get that um but that also feels like it mirrors slightly the scene in the shining where jack is in the bathroom talking to the the waiter that spilled a drink on him at the party Mm -hmm. and he they have this disagreement about who the waiter is and jack thinks that he is a former caretaker but he talks to him long enough that then the waiter admits that he did kill his wife and kid and like there's like this that element of like talking the ghost apparition out of who they think they are i don't know that's interesting yeah i definitely i didn't i did not have that part obviously <laughs> yeah well and there's there's a couple there's there's a couple of scenes that it just like i said you know i said kind of a richness but it, it really just it's a different movie yeah. and especially and we're going to get into this uh at, towards the end of this episode but there is an element of this movie that makes this movie so good. And so much of that comes from the director's cut. Because yeah. I feel like the director's cut takes the time to really dive into the humanity behind these characters. Into these really powerful key moments in their lives that give us footholds into being able to find them relatable, find them redeemable. And and I think... You know, there's so often that you'll watch a director's cut, they add in 30 minutes and it's just useless stuff. You know, like we talked about it with Cowboys and Aliens. We talked about it with Mm -hmm. other things. That is just simply not the case here. It is worth the investment. It's worth the three hours. And like I said, it's no it's no time wasted with this stuff. So you don't feel it. You know, I was actually yeah. I was surprised. It's absolutely worth it if you want to make that investment. Obviously the time, but also monetarily, you would have to at least rent it. Yeah. That's I mean, as we've established, I watched the the HBO version, but I definitely feel like I want to go back and, and watch the director's cut for sure um because i i mean I, I really enjoyed it it just worked really well and actually i'm so happy that i watched the shining before that because i think it made me appreciate the things and just how well they worked and what quote-unquote fan service is there is not blatant and heavy-handed you understand the moments then the references aren't you know slap you across the face going ah see what we did there it's like yes you know, these are things that are that have to happen. Um, 
But if I hadn't rewatched The Shining before, I probably would have missed the meaning of a, of a lot of things. I, I agree with that completely. I'm really glad you said that. This is definitely one that doesn't stand alone. You really <laughs> do have to watch The Shining to yeah. get the full effect of Dr. Sleep. That's yeah. the, I'm really glad that you said that because I found myself, as I watched Dr. Sleep, feeling the exact same way saying i'm so glad i watched that because i feel like i'm catching on a lot of things yes because it definitely it does not pander it it assumes that you know the shining and it assumes yes. that you are up to date on the history behind it and 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 it jumps right in which which yep. i love that i love it when a movie does that yes totally Okay, let's jump into the meat of this. This movie is a lot to digest, but I think I want to focus on two main elements. Um, yeah. You know, I kind of, I've settled into this routine to kind of break down what a movie is, right? Or break down what it thinks it's trying to be or, or whatever. And I think in this case, this movie very much is two things. First, yeah. it's a horror movie. And second, there's this human story, right? Mm -hmm. The, the yeah. story of Dan Torrance. So let's dive into the first one first. And like I said, this movie is first and foremost supposed to be a horror movie. And while I think Dr. Sleep is a good movie, generally speaking, I'm not fully convinced that I think it was a great horror movie or even a, mm -hmm. even a good one at that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think to me, it really played a lot more like a thriller, more in line with movies like Seven or Silence of the Lambs. And to be clear, I'm not making a comparison in terms of quality, only in terms of tone. Like this, yeah. in terms of the bads, it felt not so much supernatural as it as it did, I don't know, serial killery. Yeah, and I, I'll totally get behind the, that Silence of the Lambs comparison. I mean, I think I grew, I was young, I think when... I remember seeing that poster, you know, the, the with the moth, the death moth, mm. and that scared the crap out of me. And you know, and and Hannibal Lecter has, you know, in the zeitgeist been pumped up to be this this you know horror figure, and he's not the killer in the movie. Like you know, he's he's not the focus necessarily. You know, we're not going to the Silence of the Lambs, but you understand what I'm saying. He's not. He's not. <laughs> I think a we picked our next deep dive. <laughs> um, you know, he's yeah, not a I slasher, agree. right? Yep. And and. So I always grew up with this idea that Silence of the Lambs is a horror movie. And then when I finally saw it, I was like, oh, I had this movie pegged completely wrong. Yes. So I, I think that's exactly right. I mean, that's the, a great comparison for sure. Yeah. And, you know, so getting into kind of getting into the details of this horror, I struggled a bit with the idea of the true knot. And we, like I said, the true knot are... I guess shiners who eat children to stay quote immortal. Um, they're these, I really don't know. They're really, they're vampiric. They're vampires. They're shining vampires yeah. is what they are. And I don't mean twilight twinkly. I mean that they can kind of sense and they do a shine where they can find kids who shine and they torture them and cause them fear and pain because it gets more of this steam. And then as they die, their bodies release this massive cloud of mist and steam. They sort of, I mean, they literally move like vampires and they just jump yeah. on it and suck it up. Yeah. And, and it causes them, they get younger. And you see moments, right, as they'll age and get gray. And, and then when yeah. they drink in the steam, they look younger and refreshed and so on and i so. and i think uh the line that uh um that rose uses is eat well live long 
Yeah, eat well, live yeah. long. Yeah. And there's moments where suddenly you realize that while they do live a long time, and the implication is centuries, right? When mm-hmm, mm-hmm. when one of them is is fading out, they uh, you know she starts listing all the 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 time that he's been on this earth, and you know he's like, oh, you've seen empires and you fought in these wars, and and the implication is they've been around for thousands of years. So I struggled with the true knot. I really found myself drawn so much more to the story of the Overlook, its ghostly occupants, you know, and them leaving the abandoned hotel and coming after Dan. Basically, after the events of The Shining, the Overlook Hotel is boarded up and it is left to rot. Um, Mm -hmm. Because of that, people aren't coming in, people aren't visiting, and the ghosts trapped within the hotel don't have anyone to feed off of. And so they start coming after Danny as a child. And we see scenes of this in flashbacks. They come after Danny as a child and Dick comes back to him kind of Jedi style <laughs> and yeah. uh, and and sort of talks him through and teaches him how to, in his mind, create boxes and compartments to trap these ghosts into so that they can't get to him. And this is kind of cool because it really dives in more into sort of the mythology and and the the depths of which this shining gift really uh, really works and how it works and and what you can do and and mm-hmm. it's 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 interesting, but and that's what was super fascinating about it. The whole premise of that felt so much more supernatural and in line with what I was hoping for and would expect from a horror movie, whereas Mm. The True Knot felt very natural, even with their, I guess, supernatural shine-eating element. You know, that's why they felt more like the the thrillers I described above. You know, they felt easily dispatched. They felt they still felt very human. They they just felt like killers as opposed to ghosts or or something um, that you would have less of an answer for. Right? Yeah. I would have loved to get a deeper dive into the Overlook as the real horror, Um, and instead, it's very much brushed over in favor of the True Knot storyline. But all that being said, this is a film based on an existing novel, and the story is what it is, especially given that The Overlook is destroyed at the end of Stephen King's original novel, and that that whole element wouldn't even exist in Dr. Sleep. In fact, in Dr. Sleep, a lot of it has to do, there's a campground now where The Overlook used to be, and that's kind of where the big finale happens. Um, But, you know, the stuff that I'm loving or, or like, oh, I wish I had more of that. It's not even it's it's not even something that exists in this book because it's been destroyed already. Yeah. Um. So I guess what it seems I'm saying here is that I wish the movie Doctor Sleep hadn't been based on the book at all and was really just a straight up sequel. And so really this isn't even a helpful critique. Um. But you know I again I just can't shake how good in my mind I just can't shape how good a story like that could have been, especially mm-hmm. with Mike Flanagan at the helm, um, who did such incredible work with the the story of Hill House, another series and concept that really focused on a place being the driving force of this supernatural terror um and i just like i can't help but think how good that would have been yeah i'm you know you and i have talked in the past um just about hill house and um you know how when they said it was going to be an anthology we you and i have talked off air about how 
how we thought that could work and whether that would be about the hills and the origin of the situation. Mm -hmm. And like, we just, there was more stories to be told, you know, why do these ghosts are there and what is the power behind, you know, Nell's reverse premonition situation and all of that. Um, So I, I, I could feel that happening here. You know, maybe there's other stories about these ghosts in the overlook, um, you know, I get that impulse to go straight back to the hotel as as I think that's initially what I was expecting. Um, and the hotel is just as much a character in The Shining as anybody else, right? I mean, that location is the movie. When you think of The Shining, the first couple of things you think of is, you know, Jack, Nichols, uh, Jack Nicholson in the door and the hotel and the carpet and, you know, and Stanley Kubrick's version of it. Um, but that's not the human story element to this right that's not danny's story is going back to that hotel he was five or six you know when he left um and i think one of the the biggest things that i i could draw from this and part of the reason i liked it i guess too is like it felt like you know an old godzilla movie where like you know we defeated godzilla in the first one but now a new threat has emerged and we realize in the end we got to harness the power of our previous foe to defeat the new threat right i like, think that's a really great yeah like let's yeah let's call godzilla back have him take care of mothra and then we'll go on our merry way it was like you sort of kind of knew okay if we're not if this is not going to be about the hotel we're going to end up there for a reason right like danny has to confront his past eventually i mean it's he's in aa right throughout this movie and like yeah. that's one of the steps right to, to kind of circle back on your life um and you know make amends with things like that um but you know practically speaking i feel like this was all about the hotel people would have maybe cried more fan service and would have you know worried um you know would have made it feel hollow um and then we would have ended up maybe with a sequel to that you know like we've seen so many other times when you get like an anchorman 2 or something where it's just like the same movie again with a you know a slightly different uh you know luster to it or something but um yeah, it's. Uh, I, I see where you're coming from, though. I do. Yeah. Yeah, and I think you make a really great point. And obviously, it's it's a fleeting thing because, you know, I I think it's just that I was so disappointed by the true knot and how they just never felt supernatural or ghostly, even though they had those elements. They just yeah. weren't scary, you know. Instead, yeah. they just felt sort of serial killery and and that kind of thing. And uh, like I said, they were just so easily overcome. And whereas, you know, I think the idea of a deep rooted evil dwelling in the Overlook would have lent itself better to a more proper horror movie. Um, yeah. You know, maybe what I really wanted was just like a Mike Flanagan retelling of The Shining, <laughs> you know, not to take away from Kubrick's at all, but I feel like, you know, I mean, I genuinely believe his film's a masterpiece, but I just think like with Fan- with Flanagan's skill at writing the terror of a house and-, and what a house can hold and today's advances in filmmaking, that could have been really neat, but yeah. that that only lasts as long as you are you're really looking for this to be a horror movie Mm -hmm. i think once you can accept and you have three hours to do it so (laughs) you know and it hits us all at different times but once you can accept that this isn't really a horror movie yeah then suddenly i think the points you're making become much much more clear in that you know, while I, I while I didn't find the true not scary, I was glad that we were diving 
deeper and differently into this mythos and not just like you said playing fan service and and just sort yeah. of you know i don't know coming up with another uh, uh, just a, a a retelling of something we've already seen yeah there just there wasn't enough done with their the true not storyline or them as characters to make them scary like i was genuinely disturbed when they killed the baseball boy yeah. um and even so when grandpa flick cycled and died like there's creepy when he like kind of flashing this like flashing in and out of zombie mode and um just the way he died was was really kind of horrifying but like beyond that like uh, I, I struggled with them because they kind of came off as cool and bohemian and like they got this caravan going down to burning man and like you know rose's trailer is like all outfitted with like you know pillows and gypsy fight and it just like they weren't scary people per se right so i think you could have taken them down a, a, a scarier road and even just the idea like the way we saw rebecca ferguson's character in um, the greatest showman and then like she just doesn't she because she's not a evil horrifying person <laughs> like, it's true it's, yeah i mean that's, that is really true it she didn't like exude anything that immediately made me terrified and i think yeah. and i think that's what it is i agree with you completely when they killed the baseball kid um Ugh. which is uh, what's his name jacob tremblay or something like that yeah. is the kid actor who plays him that scene was deeply disturbing and it was it was haunting like it really bothered me you see mm-hmm. every bit of this kid being tortured in horrific ways and 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 these people just i mean you can really feel the terror um and i think that scene works really well as a thriller as a as a disturbing scary i mean the real world is a scary place right yeah but it didn't trigger my horror you know part like it just didn't fire that part of my brain because i think in my mind you know they still play as very human um you know even though they have this shining gift or whatever like we see later in the movie you shoot one of them and they're gone like anybody else so you know you just can't help but feel like well as long as i have a fighting chance it's not it's not terrifying in my soul. You know what I mean? Um, but that scene in particular was hard to watch for sure. Yeah. But you know, once, like I said, once you accept that this isn't a proper horror, then Mm -hmm. you can kind of accept the good for what it really is. And yeah, and it is there. It does exist in there. Yeah. Um, one of the last things I want to touch on in terms of this horror element is that, you know, I really do genuinely love how Mike Flanagan used Kubrick shining as the base for this and was able to tie in some of the original elements of the shining, particularly the ending. It just, it really felt like a perfect sequel marrying the two intellectual properties of King, Mm -hmm. right? The, the, the shining and Dr. Sleep. For example, you know, at the end of The Shining, we talked about how the Overlook blows up. It's destroyed at the end of The Shining. And the reason that this is, is the character of Jack Torrance in the book The Shining is a totally different character than how Jack Nicholson plays him in Kubrick's movie, which was the biggest issue that King had with the 1980 film. Because, you know, Jack Torrance kind of just feels like a dick from the (laughs) get-go. I mean, you definitely see him get a little bit crazier and, and he... 
I guess he falls back into drinking, although it's, isn't it ghost liquor? Like, you know, that part gets a little muddy, (laughs) but you know, it's, you know, he, he doesn't really have as strong an arc as he does in the book. In the Mm. book, he opens up as a loving, doting father. There is this incident that happens where he breaks Danny's arm. And then he, you know, because he's a, he's a drunk and then, you know, so then he quits and he's good again. Then the house turns him super evil. But in the end, he fights off the overlook. I don't mean, not the house, the overlook hotel. He fights off the overlook and destroys it with him inside. He sacrifices himself to save his family and Dick Holleran, uh, who lives at the end of The Shining. And so this is, um, that is something that was really missing from the movie. And Flanagan is able to really bring that in here because essentially the ending of Dr. Sleep is the ending of Stephen King's The Shining. Um, And he's able to bring that all together in a way that works so well and I think is what made Stephen King fall in love with it. Like I mentioned, there's other changes. Uh, For example, Dick Holleran or or Scatman Carruthers' character in The Shining, he ends up living in the book. He dies at the end of the movie. So all the dialogue that we see uh, Dick Holleran's character in Doctor Sleep having with young Danny and even older Danny later on it's the same dialogue that you find in the book, but it's him as a ghost rather than a real person. So you have to kind of yep. work in that Jedi element like I was talking yeah. about. Um, <laughs> yep. But again, I think this really elevates Dr. Sleep because it ends up adding something to the character, right? Elevating his role in the film, especially when he's convincing Dan to help Abra. You know, yeah. there's there's this moment where... Ewan McGregor's Dan is is kind of like, why me? Why should I help her? And why should I do this? And Dick's response is, well, why me? And the fact that in this movie, right, he's dead. It just, it's, it means there's so much more force behind that statement. When you consider the fact that helping young Danny cost Dick his life, as opposed to if he had lived that moment, that exchange is is so much less. So I think in a way, not only does this movie do a good job of, of bringing in the elements of the book Dr. Sleep and keeping true to them by having these exchanges, for example, with these characters, but it's even better because of Kubrick's version because it mm-hmm. adds so much more power to moments like these that just yeah. i mean i couldn't i couldn't imagine watching that exchange where there hadn't been that sacrifice of life on Dick's part trying to convince Dan to help Abra like i just couldn't i can't even fathom that in my brain yeah and i just i felt watching the shining too that that Dick just dies so unceremoniously oh dude I mean, he just <laughs> barely so shows back up. you know he spends all this time getting back to the hotel to to do his best to rescue danny and um and wendy and he walks in the door and he says hello like 500 times hello is anybody here and then just gets axed and that is it yep. and it's like that, I just feel so bad for him. He traveled all the way from Miami back to Colorado just to get axed. And I, I, I that this feels justified for him, like to do that force ghost kind of thing. Right. You know, it just makes me feel better about that and sees that more of a sacrifice. Um, 
you know, a, a, wor- a, a worthy sacrifice that, that he's then able to, A, help Danny kind of immediately in the aftermath, um, you know, in that early scene, and then again later on, the 30 years later. So, Yeah, no, absolutely. And so I, I think that's a good spot to kind of bring us into this next section, which is that, you know, in addition to attempting to be a horror movie, as, as yeah. I've just sort of argued, um, it's also very much a dramatic human story. You know, mm-hmm. in this, we see the depth of addiction, the pain of loss, and and the extreme toll that that pain has on a person, especially when so much of it is self-inflicted, right? Mm-hmm. You know, King wrote these novels as windows into his own struggles. The Shining was written in the midst of his own battle with addiction, and Dr. Sleep came from the perspective of a man fighting that daily battle against that addiction and you know and this is something that i do believe is lost in kubrick's the shining Mm -hmm. but beautifully depicted here in dr sleep through the lens of dan and Mm -hmm. you know dan is a good man but the guilt and pain of his past leads him down this path of self-destruction and then through the brilliant execution of textbook 3x screenplay structure we follow that broken man on this road to redemption right um we talked a little bit already about how king's biggest criticism of kubrick's film was that jack torrance felt lost from the start In Dr. Sleep, Flanagan really does succeed in humanizing Dan so that even when he does horrible things, we're still able to pull for him. We're still able to see him as our hero. We're still hoping for his redemption. We can feel the pain of his loss rather than being glad that he's dead, right? The Shining, Jack Torrance, is the the big bad. And when he freezes to death, we don't care he's dead. We just see Mm -hmm. the deliverance of Danny and Wendy. Um, And and like I said, that's just not how it ends. In Dr. Sleep, the ending mirrors what The Shining was supposed to be, as I mentioned. So in the end, Dan sacrifices himself to destroy the hotel. And that moment, the fact that that can happen, and at the end, we can be, we can feel sorrow that he did that and, and sorrow that he's lost really shows how great of a job Mike Flanagan did in Dr. Sleep to, to bring this, to bring a complete picture and representation of this character of dan um that like i said i just felt was lacking in the first there's also another (laughs) i feel like we keep coming back to the star wars thing and it's appropriate with ewan mcgregor but um you know it's just i think i felt this with with the dick halloran character too like i said before it's like you know you strike me down and i'll become more powerful it's like yeah he sacrificed himself you know dan did at the end but you kind of already knew that he was going to be more useful. He almost maybe be more useful to Abra after that in this, you know, kind of shine ghost (laughs) format, right? Like, Mm -hmm. yeah, he did what he had to do for his mortal body. And we were sad and disappointed when he didn't make it out of that fire, but you knew that wasn't the end of their relationship and it might actually work out better for her to have him not in the flesh anymore, you know? Right. 
And that's yeah. that's kind of nice too. I mean, it brings in a whole nother. There's a moment where she's talking to her mother and is just like, "We go on after Daddy's yeah. okay," and every like the people who have died, and she can bring comfort to her family with that knowledge. Um, there's a lot of things that happen in this movie that really drive this idea home. That really drive home this humanization of a character and and, and this uh, approachability. This um, uh-huh. just this genuine caring for this person uh a couple of really great examples that come to mind early on he dan um is wasted he he hooks up with some woman and he wakes up she's just laying in her own vomit he goes in she i guess stole his money from his wallet to buy drugs he goes into her wallet while she's passed out and takes you know every cent she has and as he's walking out the door as he's walking out the door a little kid comes out of another bedroom her son and and dick shows up and is like leave her the money like she needs this money and instead of doing anything he just puts the kid on the bed and leaves and there's a moment later which i is is a bit of a plot hole right because this woman has nothing to do with the overlook or anything else and it really seems to only exist for the purpose of making us understand the depths of how bad Dan was. Um, They die. And he's laying in his bed as a recovering alcoholic and the ghost of this woman and the baby show up in the bed and, and she's basically like, can you please send someone to find us? No one has found us. No one knows to look for us. She was just dead when he left and didn't know. And he just left them there. And you don't even see him resolve anything. Everything about this moment, it was was so bad. Everything about this moment should have made you hate him. But yet we don't because of the depth of understanding we get of his character. You know, this is further driven home, I think, by the juxtaposition of the death of Snakebite Andy, who is one mm-hmm. of the members of the True Knot, who we see converted through this process, yeah. right? And while there's a lot of questions that I have well, about the True Knot, at yep. least we got to see, you know, Snakebite Andy was kind of using her her shine, her ability. She They call her a pusher. She can convince people to do things. Um, yep. And it seems like what she's doing is luring, she's she's 15 i think and she's luring pedophiles in and then having them you know robbing them or having them kill themselves or or whatever and uh you know and so the the true knot is drawn to her they see because of her shine but when they see her ability instead of eating her they make her part of the group so that she can function for them in that way of like having kids you know be forced into the van or whatever uh i guess that makes more sense i I struggled with her, and this is going off on another tangent, but I'll just resolve this for myself. But I struggled with her for that reason. If they are struggling to eat well, why turn an additional mouth? I just... uh, Well, I guess the theory, yeah, being that she'll make it easier for them to eat these kids. Sure. But it is, you know, whereas... So there's a a moment where she's dying, right? She's in this shootout with all the other members of the True Knot, with the exception of two. Uh, Crow Daddy and Rose the Hat. And so Dan, with the help of Billy Freeman, his best friend, who's been helping him with this recovery process over the past several years, you know, they make a plan to trap 
the true knot who are chasing Abra. They go through this whole thing. And when when they show up, there's a massive shootout. Dan and Billy somehow like expertly marksmen kill everybody yeah. with these deer rifles. And, and that includes Andy, who, you know, and when we saw her at first, she was doing bad things. But, you know, you could argue in the service of good. Right. Like if you're not going to yeah. if you're not going to worry about the whole ends justify the means, she's essentially using her her evil for good in a way. Um, yeah. And so she has this moment where she's dying. And instead of being like, I was sold a bad bill of goods. I regret doing this. You know, I'm not a more like I've, you know, all the things I was promised and all this stuff has turned out to not be true i'm the true bad guy i'm the true villain instead with her dying breath she uses her power to force billy to kill himself with the rifle and like cackles and laughs as he does it it just and while that part is horrible it really does illustrate the depth of character in dan's arc Mm -hmm. and how you know someone can suffer the depths of something terrible many terrible things and find that use that remorse and use that to drive themselves to redemption and that arc is what we the viewer are looking for and and can relate to and 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 makes him a true hero and again something that was lacking in the shining there was never that moment of redemption Uh, Mm -hmm. and we get that here which i think at the end of the day makes this so much of a more well-rounded film yeah and i think you know and just billy as a character too does a lot to help you past some of these moments because dan is so self-deprecating when they first meet you know he's um he's at the bottom of the spiral he's just left this woman and and her kid and he stumbles into town and he looks terrible yeah and Billy doesn't know him from Adam and puts his name up for him to, to rent this room, you know, in this, I guess, sort of halfway house where, where Billy himself lives. And, you know, Billy just does a lot of this stuff for Dan. I mean, just this whole scene alone that, that ends with Billy's death. He, he helps Dan go dig up the, the baseball boy. And then without questioning, he's like, yeah, I mean, I'll help you take out these people. And he just, he's got this blind trust. And I think that goes a long way for you to realize, like, well, if this guy can trust Dan, you know, sight unseen, there must be something about him, some some good in there somewhere, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and, and this speaks also to what I was talking about before with this textbook three-act structure in the story writing, in the screenwriting, because we follow Dan all on the ups and downs that we expect to see, right? And, and this moment, the loss of Billy, us learning that Ugh. that woman and the baby had died, us learning all these things about him, send him further and further into the depths of despair. This is capped yeah. by the fact that their plan fails. Abra is taken by Crow Daddy, and, and her father is murdered senselessly, right? And and yep. he is, so he has, he has lost his best friend. The goal didn't work. The true the true knot still exists. Abra is gone. Her father's dead. You know, this baby is dead. This woman is dead. All this stuff is hitting and sending him into the absolute depths, right? So we, we've seen him in the depths at the end of the first act or, you know, kind of yeah. in the second act. 
with the drinking. We've seen him rise out of that as he's done yep. the AA thing and kind of started to build a decent life for himself. We catch glimpses of him. He he takes on a job at a hospice facility and he helps people transition into the afterlife and that kind of a thing, mm-hmm. right? So we get a glimpse of him using his shine uh, to help these people. So we're, we're getting glimpses of this redemption and then this intense, you know, Abra kind of brings him is it is another form of conflict and is drawing him onto this quest that he doesn't want to go on, but he goes on anyway to help her to destroy this group. And it has led to even greater loss than he experienced at the yeah. beginning. And so at the end of the second act going into the third, we see him at a deeper rock bottom than we've seen him before. And it pushes him to the brink of almost caving into drinking again. But in true fashion, our hero fights off that obstacle and starts the climb up to his final redemption, which ends in him losing his life, but a fully redeemed character, a fully redeemed hero who wasn't perfect, but you know, that, that is, when you look at a movie, those are the ebbs and flows. Those are the highs and lows that you expect to feel and see. And the fact that this movie delivers those so perfectly and expertly, right? There's a reason the mold exists. It's great when a movie strays from that, breaks the mold, whatever, groundbreaking. I get it. That's not detracting from that. This movie stays true to a tried and true format. And in the end, it saves it because where you have the disappointment of a failed horror movie, you gain this incredible drama laced in with this solid thriller that really, it saves this movie. Yeah. I, the the fact that I felt that tension at this moment that, that you're talking about when, mm. when Dan's got the bottle, um, you know, Abra's dad had had been knocking a few back earlier when they first met to kind of steal his nerves against yeah. all of this, and he had offered a, a drink to Billy and Dan, and they both flat out said no. Um, but when you know after Billy's death and Dan finds Abra's dad dead, he takes that bottle back to his room, and just the tension was so thick in that scene as he struggled with that bottle in his hand. That's how that's how I knew like. I've been on that ride with them, right? Like that I have all these things that we have highlighted have worked to that point where I I'm feeling that right now in that moment. Mm -hmm. And you're like, you know, practically screaming at the movie, like, don't do it. Don't, don't drink. Like you're no use to anybody, you know, to, if you give in now, like I don't want you to, I mean, just that whole sequence. uh, I mean, he had every, a lesser a lesser man would have broken at that point yeah right? well, I, and that's just, what makes him the hero exactly i mean just if billy gets nothing for all of that trust that we mentioned in you know he just is willing to put everything up for dan and he gets taken out and you know even abra's dad comes around pretty quick you know as as there's you know a through line where she hides her shine sort of like dan does because her parents just don't understand her um you know, it's just, but when these people come around and they're like, okay, let us do what we got to do. And then they get nothing for it. It just, you know, Dan leaves more people dead in his wake, you know, so to, you know, as he did earlier in the movie, uh, it just, it all comes to that head. And, you know, like I said, it just, that tension was so, so thick at that, at that point. Yep. 
Well, and so yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna decide not to totally spoil the ending. I don't think it's necessary, and it's a real highlight of the movie, especially as you take the journey mm. with Dan as he learns to use his shine differently. I think what's great is it all pays off. You know, yeah. to kind of use a quick sports analogy and bring this all home, you know, Doctor Sleep is like a football team with an epic defense and a mediocre offense and quarterback at best, right? I think, uh, you know, like Trent Dilfer with the Ravens when they won the Super Bowl back in like 2000, or Peyton Manning's second Super Bowl win when he was with the Broncos. Mm. The true knot, and by extension, the horror side of Doctor Sleep is the floundering quarterback, right? <laughs> He's not going to win the game, but it will do yeah. just enough to keep you competitive and stay out of the way and let the human story or this epic defense drive home the win, right? That's what this movie does. Dr. Sleep is a tremendously weak horror movie, but I feel mm -hmm. that this human drama was hugely powerful. Coupled that with the incredible homages to Kubrick's controversial classic and the successful weaving of King's original vision for the film, textbook structure, solid writing, decent acting, Dr. Sleep succeeds as a solid King adaptation and a solid sequel to Kubrick's The Shining, both of which are rare feats and a massive mm. achievement like we've talked about. I yeah. think it's a must watch, especially if you're a fan of The Shining. Um, I give it a seven out of 10. Yeah, I think that's absolutely fair. I, I definitely agree that it's a must watch if you if you like, um, you know, uh, Kubrick's version. Um, because as we touched on, it just it does such a great job of marrying them up again, having watched them back to back. I just felt right. It didn't feel um, it just it, it was it was it was just perfectly married. Um, I definitely don't put this in the horror column for all of the reasons that that we've laid out. But really, that ends up being OK with me. Um, and ironically, based on something that, that I think I just learned recently, I mean, after our last rewind episode, when we were tasked with, um, uh, you know, a request to watch Happy Death Day. I, as, a, as I mentioned, I liked it so much when you said you had the sequel. I went and watched the sequel. Um, and that movie ends up being a different genre, too, in the sequel to that movie. Whereas the first one was, you know, much more of a slasher movie. The second one is more of a sci-fi kind of element to it. Like, the slasher thing is there, but I wouldn't call it a slasher movie the way that you maybe call the first one um, a slasher movie. So... It it it's just kind of an interesting idea that a sequel can be in a different genre but still work as a sequel and not yeah. feel like they missed the mark. Um, you know, I feel and I kind of mentioned this earlier. You get to a sequel and it's like, okay, let's do Anchorman two, and it's just going to be a whole rehash of Anchorman one because and, and it almost is in some degree shot for shot remake. We have the whole fight scene. We're just going to turn it up a notch, right? Where it's like we could have gone in a different direction and made you know an equally good movie or something like that. Um, you know, it's just it, ultimately it's it's just very reflective of. Uh, of the, the the struggles that King put into his book, right? We you look back at those personal things that you outlined earlier, and um, you know, writing these novels at different ages and different places in your life are gonna probably affect the genre and where we're being, you know, how that's being written. Um, but just adding that with with the vision of of the Kubrick one, it's just uh, 
it, it is. It's it's not it's not a horror movie when you're putting this up against The Shining, which is you know a, a high on a lot of people's lists as a as a great horror movie. I mean, there's just moments in there when you know as we were outlining all the ways that this is not a horror movie. I'm thinking of the scene where you know Jack. Um, finds the lady in the bathtub and he has a passionate kiss with her and then she turns into a rotting bloated corpse and like that's pure horror like yeah. that is a horror movie um, and nothing that's rarefied air right to stand up against The Shining and to have this attempt to do that would have been a mistake and maybe that's why this suffered maybe people you know uh, maybe you know people casual fans that like the shining expected to be equally scared and didn't get this human element that we got out of it um it's it's just it's a I, you're right i mean it is it is a perfect um successor uh and just does everything it can to tie all of those crazy knots that we mentioned earlier together. And it's just, it's very, very well done. So I, I have to agree with the seven out of 10 for sure. Yeah. Dude, awesome. I love it when a plan comes together. Um, yeah. Well, I think that wraps up this episode, guys. Thank you so much for listening, for watching this and, and just joining us. We'd love to hear your thoughts, agree, disagree, whatever. So shoot us a message, Instagram at paused reviews on the website, pausedreviews.com. Shoot us an email, uh, pausedreviews at gmail.com, whatever. There's so many ways to get in touch with us. Um, check this out and all of our episodes anywhere that you listen to podcasts and just share your thoughts. We'd love to talk about them on a rewind. Um, we have a whole section just for that. Yeah. Speaking of rewinds, our next episode is a rewind. Uh, so yeah. send us any requests or recommendations, anything you want us to talk about. Uh, we'd love to have it. I've posted some stuff up on some news that's been happening over the weekend. Um, comment on that. We'll share your comments on the episode. Additionally, make sure you tune in. We're going to try out a new little segment that I'm a little bit excited about. Um, <laughs> Tim is not a superhero movie guy. Uh, yeah. you know, he kind of has it in his mind that they're just, uh, not for him, uh, yeah. even though he doesn't really watch them. So how would he know? <laughs> so it's like when I tell my kid, he's like, dad, I hate potatoes. I'm like, you haven't had this potato. Why don't you try it first? So we're going to introduce a new section and we're going to call, or we're going to, we're going to play around with a segment called, uh, can we convince Tim? And yeah. given that we've had all this Batman news after DC fandom and everything like that, we're going to start off with some Batman animated films um, yeah. before, you know, the, the movies, the, st the standalones, all the live action stuff. Those are what they are. Maybe we'll get into those. But first, we're going to try to convince Tim that A, Batman movies are epic and B, that the animated movies are so underrated and really stand on their own merit, even though they are cartoons. So if you guys want to watch along with us, the first one we're going to do on this rewind is Batman Year One. We're going to start them off at the beginning of this sort of arc, and then we'll I'll, we'll have a couple, each, each rewind we'll do one, and we'll see if we can convince Tim that Batman animated movies are worth his time and are his yeah. jam. Yeah, let's test this out. And if anybody else is, you know, wants to take this journey with me, uh, I'm open for it. Yeah, get, get some other people on this bandwagon and see maybe Frank's wrong. Maybe they're not worth it. Maybe it is horrible and I'd be better off living my life never have watched it. Yeah, guess who's uh, guess who's very rarely wrong when it comes to this stuff, Tim? <laughs> there's, there's a reason I have this podcast. And it's not just because it's super easy and everyone has a podcast. 
<laughs> it is mostly that. <laughs> um, okay, for next week's Rewind, we are going to do Batman Year One as the Can We Convinced Him. So if you want to watch along, you can actually stream it for free on HBO. Uh, or, well, actually, on HBO Max. you got to have HBO Max. That's what gives yeah. you the access to all that DC stuff. Um, so check it out there for free uh, or rent it by whatever. It's super worth it. Otherwise, uh, join us for the Rewind and see uh, see Tim's thoughts, along with other things. We're going to be watching other stuff. Lots to talk about. So thank you again for joining us this week. As always, I'm your boy Frank. This is Tim. And we'll catch you on the next one. See ya. Yeah.